From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Welcome to EWTN's Open Line. Father John Tregilio is in the starting blocks, ready to go. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd love to hear from you. That number is one 205 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window. And it may find its way to us by the end of the program, but primarily we want to talk to you at 833-288-3986. Our host, as he is every Monday, Father John Tregilio, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Terrific, thanks. we got a hometown question for you right out of Uh-oh. the gate. Steve in Harrisburg, PA, wants to know, if our bodies are to be buried intact when we die, should an amputee be buried with his amputated limb? <laughs> How about teeth, tonsils, or the appendix if they were removed? Well, I think Steve needs to go fishing more often. <laughs> no, it's, it's a good question because... I think he uh, has some bad formation in the Diocese of Harrisburg. <laughs> no, absolutely not. No, but it, 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 it is a good question because people are showing that they're using theology and philosophy, and uh, which is a good thing. Uh, when we talk about being buried intact... Uh, we're talking about the fact that, normally speaking, all things being equal, um, a body, a person should be bodied together with all their parts. But uh, parts that have already been separated are no longer part. Uh, I mean, they, they because they're separated. Like when you get amputated, uh, your foot or your leg uh, begins to decay because it's separated from the soul as well as not being connected to the heart and the whole nervous system. So there is no theological need for someone to have all their parts that have been excised because if that were the case then all your fingernail clippings all your hair you've ever grown in your entire life um your your beard whatever you trimmed anything that was once part of you would have to be buried and that's not the case it's when the person as at the moment of death the parts that have been connected up until that point uh, should normally be buried together or in the case of of cremation that they be all kept together we don't want people taking a spoonful of grandma and dispersing it to all the relatives. I've, I know people have done that. They put it in little amulets or each person has an individual little mini urn on their um, mantelpiece. No, uh, we want people to be buried intact at the moment of the, that, of the person's um, uh, death. But all the other things that have happened during their life, uh, those things, I've had my um, tonsils removed um, and also, I've had some kidney stones, which I was glad to have excised. Uh, those don't need to be put back together. You know, I had a 
football coach that once told me to, I could easily get rid of 10 pounds of ugly fat <laughs> by cutting off my head because I wasn't using it anyway. Um, <laughs> 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Matt wants to know, does, the, does not following the general instruction of the Roman Missal make the Mass illicit? It depends on what is being disobeyed. Obviously, there are certain things which are required for it to be uh, illicit. The most important thing is that things be valid. So it be a valid sacrament, that that be actually uh, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, which means that there would be a valid Eucharist and people would validly receive Holy Communion. The Lyseity, it makes it licit. Um, certainly that the priest says the words that are in the, in the Missal, uh, that you follow the proper sequence. There are certain things which, if are omitted, uh, are uh, illicit, but don't make the whole Mass illicit. So if the priest forgets or does not wash his fingers at the appropriate time, um, if he doesn't make the appropriate sign of the cross over the gifts. These are all things which he should do, and if he uh, intentionally omits them, then it's it's illicit. Uh, in order for it to be a whole illicit mass, there have to be a number of serious uh, faux pas that are, are committed there, which, as long as it's still valid, uh, make it valid, but uh, lyseity, which means legal, uh, in, in terms of, of canon law. So we want priests to do both, obviously, what's valid, but also what's licit, because lyseity is what unites us together as uh, members of the body of Christ. Scott would like to know, what are holy days of obligation? Why are there other days besides Sunday that are required for Catholics to attend Mass? Okay, well, this um, we have this connection to our uh, Jewish uh, roots, because in Judaism they have holy days which follow a particular uh, day of the year regardless if they fall on the on the sabbath or not and in the christian dispensation we've done the same obviously easter is the highest of all feasts that's the day of resurrection but uh christmas day uh, is a holy day of obligation and it doesn't always fall on a sunday in fact it only falls on a sunday you know every several or ten years or so so we have the the, the practice of doing both celebrating on Sunday, which is the day of the Lord's resurrection, Easter and all the Sundays, but also like our Lord's birth, certainly that's a, a day of, of celebration. We celebrate um, on January 1st, uh, Feast of Mary, Mother of God, formerly it was the celebration of, of the uh, circumcision of Christ. We have the Feast of um, uh, Saints Peter and Paul. We have uh, Saint Joseph. Uh, we have um, the Immaculate Conception, the Patronal Feast of the United States, the Assumption, um, Corpus Christi and so forth so these other days which many times do not fall on a Sunday are a way of sanctifying a particular day of the year because of the particular feast itself it's not the calendar day which is important it's what's being celebrated so like December 8th the Immaculate Conception we celebrate particularly um, the day that Mary was conceived in her mother's womb or on August 15th the day she was taken up body and soul into heaven how can I explain, Jay wants to know, life after death to someone who believes that the soul simply falls asleep? Okay, well, uh, the fact that you go back to even ancient uh, pagan times, uh, Plato and Aristotle had uh, very co cogent arguments that the soul uh, lives beyond death, uh, and this is non-revealed religions using human reason alone, that the soul is immortal, the body is what uh, 
can die and, and does die. But with uh, Christianity in particular, we believe that the soul is immortal, it's made in the image and likeness of God, and it has a destiny of either going to heaven if we die in the state of grace, or God forbid, we end up in hell if we die with mortal, unconfessed mortal sin on our soul. Uh, so the existence of the immortality of the soul, that the soul cannot die, that which is immaterial, the soul does not have a body that decays, therefore there's no way for, uh, for that soul to die because it's immaterial. Now, uh, with human beings, our souls, uh, like we said, made in the image like this of God, have an intellect and a will, they do not cease to exist. And the fact that you know we, ha we have this patrimony of believing that there is indeed life after death, that we can and we do survive in our soul, but then the body uh, will be resurrected on the, at the end of the world. Uh, and finally, in our email segment here at the beginning of the program, Ronald writes in, is it appropriate to ask saints to do things for us or just for intercessory prayer? Well, we can ask them for their intercessory um, participation, which can be, for instance, people typically pray to St. Anthony when they want to find something. I do myself almost every day, especially now that I'm 61, I'm using St. Anthony overtime. I'm going to own big, big favors when I, when I see them. But there's nothing wrong with asking for a particular favor, but realizing that that saint does not do that of their own power. St. Anthony does not have little special magical powers to help us find things. St. Anthony then intercedes on our behalf to Jesus and asks that, uh, we, he, that somehow we are, we are finding the things that are, that are lost in the same way that someone would pray uh, to St. Joseph for happy death uh, or St. Jude for hopeless cases. It's not that that particular saint has these particular uh, duties or job description, but because of our human nature, we like to associate certain attributes to a particular saint. Again, we're not going to only that saint. We're asking that saint to go to Jesus on our behalf. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Mary in Michigan, George in New York, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Oh, the things that come up during the breaks, it's amazing. And actually, Father, I think that would be a perpendicular universe. <laughs> 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. You know, EWTN Radio is available on most of the smart speaker systems that are out there. As a matter of fact, I give you, I, I give, I would suggest that you try it out when you're visiting a friend's home. If you see an Amazon device, for example, <laughs> just simply say, "Alexa, 
play EWTN radio and bless the people you're listening with. Uh, with and uh, if they're listening right now, that will have activated it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I get emails to that effect. I got I got one email from a from a slightly upset lady who was very great, grateful for our programming. But not when the baby's trying to take a nap. So uh, <laughs> she can control the volume a little better than what I was able to let her do. Uh, but just try it out. Um, EWTN Radio on most smart speaker systems. As advertised, first up today is Mary in West Michigan, a first-time caller, listening at EWTN.com. Mary, thank you so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon, gentlemen. I'm calling about my late father, He wasn't really a believer. He didn't believe in the concept of going to heaven, although I'd say he was in favor of religion generally to keep order in society. I never really tried to convince him otherwise because I thought, you know, he'd dig in his heels and I wouldn't get anywhere. Now I feel guilty that I never tried to work out another angle to get through to him. Uh, Is there any prayer I can say for him? Oh, yes, uh, by all means, because, uh, you know, there's... um we 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 hope and pray that uh, even um, with his uh, lack of belief, as long as it wasn't you know overtly uh, intentional, that he you know um, precisely, objectively, conscientiously um, rejected Christ. Uh, if he just didn't believe because he didn't put uh, a lot of effort into it. Um, certainly, if 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 he's uh, in purgatory, your prayers gonna be of of a help to him and assistance. And uh, that's certainly a belief of the church is, you know, we give everyone the benefit of the doubt. And as Pope um, Benedict XVI, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, made it very clear in uh, um, Dominus Jesus that uh, the only people who are sort of lost are those who intentionally, directly uh, reject. Uh, It's not just that you don't pay attention or ignore, but you have to intentionally reject uh, Christ and his church in order to be in... uh, in bad state eternally. So certainly praying for your father, I would pray uh, certainly through the intercession of uh, St. Monica, who prayed uh, 30-some years for her son, St. Augustine, and her husband, uh, the father, St. Augustine, who were both uh, non-believers, non-practicing of anything, just outward pagans. She prayed, and we certainly believe it, you know, based on uh, what we see in the Book of Maccabees and the Church's teaching on purgatory, that prayers for the deceased can be of effect. We just don't know how and to what degree. But I would say, yes, certainly pray. Start praying today uh, for your dad's soul. And you've done a good thing by calling the program, Mary, because now a lot of our listeners will be praying for the repose of his soul as well. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. George is a first-time caller in Westchester County, New York, listening at EWTN.com. George, you're on with Father John Trujillo. Yes, Father, how are you? Fine. Good. You're no doubt aware of the uh, Pew Research survey that was done in, I think it was 2019, on the real presence. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, you might uh, also be aware that w- one of the commentaries uh, by, by the clergy was a Monsignor Pope, who was the pastor of a church in Washington, D.C., and his commentary on that uh, statistic... Um, was that there is an 
sense of uh, liturgical practice, or let me put it this way, he believed that there was a tur- liturgical practice was one of the foundations for the for the disbelief. I don't know if you've heard that before. If you if you have, I'd be curious as to your 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 point of view. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, I know Monsignor Pope, and he is uh, very well um, believed and thought of. Um, you know, he knows what he's from what, from whence he speaks. Uh, he's a very good pastor and a very good priest. Um, I certainly uh, concur with this idea that, uh, and I make this clear to the seminarians when I'm teaching them in, in the classroom, how we celebrate Mass and the sacraments speaks volumes to our people, not just of our belief personally, but also of how they should uh, imitate in that belief. So, for instance, when a priest uh, genuflects or bows, or when whatever he does liturgically, if he does it reverently, uh, not in in a way that's um, a caricature or um, going overboard, but showing that you're doing everything with reverence, attention, and devotion. So, for instance, uh, when the priest celebrating Mass, he's not uh, performing. Uh, this isn't about him. It's about the the Holy uh, Eucharist. So, your gestures, your demeanor, if you convey this sense of reverence and engender and, and, and ask your people to do the same. So when priests are sloppy at celebrating the sacraments, that conveys to the people that this isn't a big deal. And so they're going to either imitate that or be in disgust and, and go somewhere else. And so, yes, things can be certainly valid, but in terms of lysity, as we mentioned with a previous question, but even if it's not illicit, again, things need to be done reverently so that you show by your attention to detail, not that you're obsessive-compulsive about it, I know some priests, you know, they freak out, you know, making sure that the candles are exactly eight inches apart from each other. But the fact that the candles are lit, that the linens are clean, that they're ironed, that your vestments uh, are, are clean, that they look appropriate. You don't have bizarre pictures on there that people are wondering, you know, what, what, are, you, what are you saying there? Um, so celebrating with, with reverence, which I think uh, we see in a wonderful way in the life of Pope Benedict. Every time he celebrated Mass... He did it with great reverence, attention, and devotion. So that's what I think will bring back a lot of our people into a belief and a strong uh, adoration of the Blessed Sacraments, how we priests and how the deacons and how the bishops handle what is sacred. That we, Again, not that we are trembling every time we hold the host, but that I show people this is something important. This is something I value, I cherish from the depth of my heart. And people can tell by the way, I treat these things. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Plenty of time for your calls and a couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. Jackie is a first-time caller in Charleston, South Carolina. She's listening on Catholic Radio in South Carolina. Jackie, you're on with Father Tregilio. Um, Father, can you hear me? Yes, Oh, okay, thank you, dear. I, I'm Eastern Orthodox Christian, and we also, I believe, have the communion of saints, and I so appreciate hearing about the power and the mercy and intercession of our saints. But my question is, when I go to the Scripture of the Lord telling us, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, how can you help us to better understand 
that passage of Scripture in the context of also calling on the saints? Okay, that, that's a good question. And uh, uh, certainly, you know, as you mentioned, the Eastern Orthodox Christians, uh, like the, the Catholic Christians, you know, we have this wonderful belief uh, and doctrine of what we call the communion of saints, that they are not replacing Jesus, who's the sole mediator, as we see in Scripture, but they are fellow intercessors. So just as we see in Scripture, Jesus allowing uh, intercession and actually encouraging intercession, that people come to him on behalf of someone else. You know, uh, when Jairus' daughter was uh, was uh, uh, dying, he didn't say, well, you have her come to me. I'm, I'm not going to go through an intermediary. Uh, or when the centurion, you know, his servant boy was ill and he sent a messenger to Jesus. Jesus didn't send him back with a reprimand saying, no, if that kid wants to get better, he has to come to me directly. He allows people in the scriptures to go to him through someone else. And it's not that they're blocking Jesus. In fact, the intercessor's going to Jesus. He's just, what we're, what we're saying is, it's not something of necessity, it's by divine invitation. So for instance, with Mary at the feast, the wedding feast of Cana, she says they have no more wine. Jesus could have said to his mother, I already know that, because, you know, he's got, he's a divine person. But he does, she says, do as he tell, as he says to you. Our Lady shows us the power of intercession, intercession of many to the one mediator. So all the saints in heaven, when we're asking for their help, we're actually asking them to go to Jesus on our behalf. In the same way as you or I, if I was going to have surgery, I would say to you, could you please pray for me tomorrow? You could technically, theologically say, no, I don't, you don't need my prayers. You go to Jesus yourself. That would be true, but it would also be unchristian. It would be incompassionate. It would be unloving for me to say that. Uh, I would say, yes, I would be happy to pray for you because I'm praying to Jesus on your behalf. Chike is watching on YouTube in Nigeria, and he says, Father John, please, why did Jesus curse the fig tree even when he knew that it was not yet time to bear fruit? <laughs> well, first of all, a fig tree is, 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 uh, is not a human being, so it doesn't have the same value. There's not an immortal soul. It's not made the image and likeness of God. So by him cursing a fig tree, a fig tree is a tree. It's a plant, all right? It does not have... Uh, any uh, consciousness to it. So Jesus cursing it in this sense, uh, you know, th there's no sin or evil involved there. Um, plus, uh, him cursing the fig tree, uh, you know, scripture scholars have been pondering that for, for millennia. What exactly does it mean? It doesn't mean that Jesus, you know, flipped his lid or lost his temper that day. Um, we see God cursing in, in the Old Testament uh, as a sign of uh, divine retribution. Um, the Lord who gives life can take it away. And him talking to a plant, which, yes, you could say, well, it was, it was minding its own business. It's, a, it's not a, a sentient being. It doesn't have rationality or consciousness. So you can't extrapolate any more from that in the same way if you had cursed a rock. Uh, rocks don't have feelings. So you're not going to be doing anything wrong in, in doing that. Boy, you were, you were miserable in the 70s, weren't you? <laughs> I, I hated my pet rock, I have to admit it. 833-288-EWTN <laughs> 8 8 is our toll-free number. 
888-789-3986. If you'd like, you can also send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Molly in Colorado, Greg in Missouri, and we've got plenty of time for your calls as well. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next stop for us is Fort Collins, Colorado. Molly is listening on the Catholic Radio Network. Molly, thank you so much for holding. You're on with Father John. Hello, Father. Hi. Hi. Okay, so you have been speaking about the reverence of the priest throughout the Mass, and my concern is about restoring the reverence at the time of the Lord's Prayer, and of course other times where the priest raises his hands, which, as I understand it from all of my um, preparation as a child and now into adulthood, uh, the reverence that those hands raise signify that the priest is representing all of us. Well, since the time of the um, holding of hands in the congregation and raising our hands up from when we had the Life in the Spirit seminars, um, we're kind of, in the congregation, we're kind of doing a mishmash. And it would be pretty wonderful to have some catechesis to uh, let us know that those raised hands have a real significance for reverence to God and for us to understand how the priest is representing us. And uh, I don't know, you know, how to really talk about that to my, my pastor. I've tried, but he, mm-hmm. he says, well, everybody is doing what they really feel is from their heart. But it's pretty mixed up. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, I, I tread here uh, cautiously because I know some people are going to take it out of context, but, uh, you know, uh, I have to answer truthfully. And uh, when we're celebrating the sacraments, uh, which is public liturgy, there are very precise postures that are required or asked of us. I, as the priest, who's the celebrant, and then uh, the, mem- the faithful who are there as members of the congregation. When you're in private prayer, when you're with a group of people, and it's non-liturgical, that means you're not at Mass, you're not at a sacrament, you can raise your hands, you can hold hands, uh, you can do any number of things, but... Uh, whatever you feel comfortable with. But when you're at church for Mass, um, the, the postures of when to kneel, when to stand, when to genuflect, holding your hands uh, close together, as we're asked to do uh, during the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, these are all prescribed uh, because it is public liturgy. It is the worship of the church uh, as a whole, as opposed to private uh, uh, piety, which someone does on their own or with a few others together. That being said, it's been made clear uh, from Rome, and also it's in the um, general instruction of the Roman Missal, that the the gesture that the people should have when, when there's the prayers that are being said by the congregation is that they keep their hands folded, 
holding hands like some people do with the Our Father, or praying in the, what they call the Oran's position uh, by the fable. These are not what's what's requested or stipulated in the Missal. The priest, as you rightly point out, is praying as the celebrant, uh, sometimes called the presider. He's representing all the people of God uh, because he's acting in persona Christi, in the person of Christ as an alter Christus, as another Christ. So he is being Christ at that moment. That's why his gestures are going to be different. That's why the people will be kneeling during the, the Eucharistic prayer. The priest will be standing. When the priest extends his hands over the, the bread and wine, only he is to, to, to do that. Uh, the deacon doesn't do it. The people in the congregation don't do it. So I know sometimes people have good intentions and say, but isn't this nice? Well, it's nice when it's uh, allowable. And it is allowable. It's, you know, it can even be encouraged when someone's praying by themselves or with a few other people. But when it's public liturgy, the church has the right and the obligation to point out those particular gestures. And if there's an option, certainly to make it stated as such, there is nowhere in the documents, uh, in the Missal or anywhere else, that give the option of holding hands during the Our Father or raising hands in the Oran's position. But I've seen it done by very nice, good people of good intention. I blame, you know, if, if, if pastors or uh, other people in liturgy office don't make it clear, you can't uh, blame it on the folks, and you certainly don't want to beat up the faithful because you're happy that they're there for Mass, and they're very uh, spiritual and, and pious people by all means. But if you want to follow what the Church's, you know, rules are, that's the, what to do is to follow exactly what's required of us at the public liturgy. When you're doing it privately, do whatever you want. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Greg is driving through the great state of Missouri, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. He's a first-time caller. Greg, you're on with Father Trujillo. Hi, guys. How's your day going? Terrific, great. thank you. What can we do for you? Well, got a question. Originally, I had a uh, acquaintance kind of challenge me about Catholicism in regards to purgatory, and their stance was that there was nowhere in the Bible that says that purgatory exists. And I failed to really make a uh, valid response or a solid response. That finally, in an effort just to kind of help lighten the mood up, I just finally said, "Well, guys, it's just a Catholic." Thing. We'll just go for it, okay? But where could I say, without I've never brought this up again, where is it that purgatory is, is cited from? Okay, well, that's that's a very common question. And, and it's, it's I find two ways of approaching that. One, don't fall into the trap of, say, of always responding, like, where is this in the Bible? Because we believe, as Catholic Christians... Uh, divine revelation comes to us through both sacred scripture and sacred tradition. We believe that the church has the authority in her magisterium to authentically interpret what's in sacred scripture and what's in sacred tradition. So when someone says, you show me where in the Bible the word purgatory is, I always respond, well, show me where the word Bible is in the Bible. The word Bible is not in the Bible. It's on the outside. The publisher, the printer puts it on there. But the Bible never calls itself the Bible. So if you were going by that strict interpretation, you wouldn't be allowed to call it the Bible. Secondly, chapter and verse were not in the original manuscripts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
Peter, nobody used chapter and verse. The church, the Catholic church, uh, through uh, a couple different priests and archbishops, came up with the brilliant idea a thousand years into Christianity of adding chapter and verse. So again, if you were strictly going by the book, you'd have to say, oh, well, there's no chapter and verse, and you'd even have to take out punctuation marks and all that. And then finally, there's an allusion to the, the concept of praying for the dead is in the book of Maccabees in the Old Testament, where um, after they, these soldiers died courageously, they made offerings and they prayed for uh, these dead soldiers that any sins they may have committed in life would be forgiven. So the whole concept of praying for the dead, you know, we say is in there. It's just not given the name purgatory, but neither is, again, the word Bible in the Bible. So, you know, you can't, don't fall into that trap where someone says, you show me in the Bible where it says this. I can say, well, I can show you where the concept's there, but I'm not going to fall into that trap and say, oh, yes, uh, if it's not explicitly in the Bible, because then I couldn't call it the Bible. How's that, Greg? Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still a couple of open lines at 833-288-3986. Tim is in Anderson, Indiana, listening on Catholic Radio Indy. Tim, you are on with Father John Tregilio. Good afternoon, Father John. Hi. My question deals with um, and I, I don't know if it's going to be a, a personal thing, but um, I went through, reluctantly, a divorce that I did not want. And now I have one priest tell, telling me that I am not eligible to receive communion. I have one that tells me that I can. I was wondering if you could set me yes. straight. Okay, I'd be very happy to. Just being divorced does not make you ineligible to receive Holy Communion. That was not always the case because uh, in the uh, 1800s, uh, when a lot of Catholic immigrants were coming here from Catholic Europe, there was no civil legal divorce over there. They came to the United States, and a lot of their Protestant neighbors and friends and, and relatives by marriage uh, were, getting, were able to get a divorce. To discourage that, the American bishops imposed an extra penalty for just divorce. But since the 1983 Code of Canon Law, um, the only time that you are ineligible for Holy Communion is if you're divorced and remarried invalidly in the church. So as long as your only status is that you're divorced, you can receive Holy Communion uh, as long as you're in the state of grace. Uh, you're not penalized. Now, if you're civilly divorced and then you get married civilly, uh, uh, after that, without an annulment, then yes, you are not to go to communion. But just being divorced does not make you ineligible. Does that give you some peace of mind, Tim? That is a relief for me. Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much for the phone call. We appreciate it. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Lisa is a first-time caller in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Listening on Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting, Lisa, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Hi there. Sounds like you guys are having a good day, and I appreciate you taking my call. You're very welcome. What can we do for you? Um, well, okay, so I, I was telling the moderator um, 
Yeah, I was a Catholic school my entire life, and I would constantly ask questions, ask questions, ask questions like, you know, what's the hierarchy like? What's this? Why is that important? On and on. And I finally would be told, you know, you don't get any more questions today, Lisa. Um, so I was listening earlier when you answered the question with respect to Jesus cursing the, you know, the, the, the fig plant. And you know, there's a lot of, obviously the New Testament is um, not the Old Testament eye for an eye. Um, so, you know, but we do have examples of punishments and things happening. And your response was, well, there's no harm in it because it's an inanimate object, okay? And so what's the harm in it? But my question, I guess, is what's the good in it and what do we learn from it? Because my youngest, um, you know, we've gone through COVID. And so he comes to me and he says, Mom, he says, um, God, God said that he would not do this to us again. And he has the ability to stop um, COVID. He has the ability to stop this. Why is he not doing this? And I understand I've listened to you guys for a long time. You guys are wonderful about suffering and we'll never fully understand it. So I guess when you said that, though, about what's the harm in the cursing the inanimate object, that I, I guess I can't wrap my head around, though, but what is the good in it? What are, what, what are we learning from that? Okay, well, that's a valid question. Um, there's no, my point was simply that, you know, not that, you know, there's any good in it. It's a neutral thing. I mean, if, you know, being Italian, you know, we're very emotional and we yell and scream at inanimate objects to get our frustrations out, okay? It's better to, in a sense, curse a plant or a rock than a human being because to curse a human being would be a sin. And so if I'm letting out my frustrations uh, on something that's inanimate and I'm not breaking it, uh, which would then, you know, make it in, unusable for other people, but I'm just, you know, letting off some steam, so to speak. Now, why Jesus cursed a fig tree, like I said, theologians have been pondering that for centuries. The church has never made a definitive pronouncement on that particular act. Some of the saints have, have said that, you know, the fig tree was uh, a symbol of, um, of the, you know, the, the uh, religious leaders of his time who should have known better and did not give good example. Uh, it could be uh, symbolic of a fallen human nature. and be in any number of things but the church has not said it's this one particular thing. Just the very act of cursing a tree, of a fig tree, um, again, that was my point, was that, you know, it's it's neutral. It's neither morally good or morally bad, um, because if you look at it in and of itself. Now, what you bring about the other thing about why didn't Jesus or God stop the pandemic, the, the COVID, or bubonic plague, um, God allows things to happen because we have his permissive will, his ordained will. And his permissive will, he allows nature to follow its course, and he can pull a greater good out of evil, even an evil committed by man, or a physical evil like a flood, a tornado. So God's not going to intervene in every single case because that's what would have happened if Eve had not sinned and they would have stayed, and the whole human race would have stayed in the Garden of Paradise. But because of sin... There's been a rupture and a disorder in nature so that now we have earthquakes and floods and viruses and bacteria and all these other horrible things because sin is what uh, messed things up, so to speak. So again, I was just looking at that particular passage. I wouldn't want to encourage people to go around starting swearing and cursing at things, but if you had to choose, it's much better to 
curse at a plant or a rock than to vet yourself at, uh, at a human being. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. I want to invite you to join us for Catholic Answers Live tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Two hours of Q&A Open Forum with apologist Carlo Broussard. That's Catholic Answers Live tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Mark is a first-time listener in Midland, Michigan, listening on Ave Maria Radio. Mark, you're on with Father John. Hey, how are you doing? Great. Hey, good. Uh, my question was, I, I just was going through the channel here, and I heard you speaking about uh, communion. Uh, through recently a divorce, and I, I was curious to... Uh, what scriptures, I guess, are supported in taking communion as far as uh, being divorced and remarried versus not? Um, what scriptures are are you using to support that? Okay. Um, I, I think your question was, you know, um, why uh, a Catholic Christian would not be allowed to receive communion if they're divorced and remarried? He wants yeah, to know what, yeah. Yeah, what scriptures are you using to support that. Okay, well, we, we, see, we clearly see this in, in the Gospels where um, Jesus makes it clear that uh, if a man um, divorces his wife and marries another, he commits adultery. And uh, adultery would put you in a position where you should not receive communion. Um, if one commits adultery, they need to be reconciled with the church. Uh, if you're divorced and remarried, you're in the perpetual state of adultery while you're physically still married to that person. Whereas if adultery, if I'm cheating with someone, I have to stop and then, you know, go to confession. If I'm in an adulterous uh, relationship because we're, we're married, well, you know, that's going to be a little bit more difficult. It's not just, you just stop overnight. You're going to have to get, get out of that uh, invalid marriage, uh, so to speak. So it's from our Lord who says that, you know, marriage is for, uh, it's permanent for the rest of your lives. And, you know, the, the so-called exception that's mentioned in, in, in the gospel, pornea, uh, unlawful marriage, it's more than just a legalism. It's about uh, marriage, which is unlawful because of its very nature. So like a brother and sister could not legally um, be married to each other. And if they were, uh, that would put themselves in, in a very pre precarious predicament. So again, you go back to the gospels, uh, where Jesus uh, says that, you know, a man marries uh, his wife, he, if he divorces her and marries another, he commits adultery, and if a wife does the same, she commits adultery. There's where the church gets that position on, you know, uh, divorce and remarriage. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Uh, Pamela writes in, when St. Paul went to the third heaven and heard languages that he couldn't describe, what was being referred to? Is this a heavenly language that people on earth can't understand? It could be a number of things, because again, the church has not made a solemn definition on that. Um, certainly, uh, we not everybody is a polyglot. I mean, I was very impressed when I met Pope Benedict and, and St. John Paul. Uh, th those are people that could just instantly reply to any language, basically, you could speak to them. They were, they know, each one of them knew several languages. Um, so it could be languages that St. Paul never understood. It could be a heavenly language. Um, you know, people who speak in tongues, uh, certainly 
um, believe in, in this uh, glossolalia, where one's able to speak in, in, in tongues that maybe be unintelligible here on earth. There's, a, there's um, some saints talk about angelic speech. So uh, it can mean a number of different things. There's not just one set uh, interpretation of that passage. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. D wants to know if suffering is part of God's will and plan, or is it from the devil? Ah, that's the, that's the mystery of, of, of evil and suffering. God does not will it in the sense that he ordains that it happens. He permits evil and suffering to happen uh, because it's a consequence of sin. So when the devil, when the Lucifer and the angels went bad, there was repercussions. When Adam and Eve sinned, there were repercussions. Um, because when you when you commit evil, there's it's like a ripple effect. And God allows suffering, as we read in Scripture, like gold tested in fire, it can purify us. Uh, this is not necessarily uh, merely met retribution. So that if I misbehave and then my mom or dad punish me, uh, sometimes innocent people, many times innocent people suffer because of the evil of someone else. God allows that to happen because then people can help the people who are suffering. And they can unite that suffering with Jesus. We call it redemptive suffering. So I would recommend reading Salvifici Dolores, which is a wonderful um, encyclical by St. John Paul the Great on the nature of suffering and evil in the world. Lauren writes in, when we ask Mary to intercede for us, isn't that like asking Jesus to allow Mary to hear us just for her to tell him the thing we're praying for? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, sure, you can. I mean, God, God already knows what you're asking for before you ask it. And when you ask his mother, he already knows what it is. But he's, he's inviting Mary and us to participate in this equation. Because when he says, asking you shall receive, someone might rightfully ask, well, why do I need to ask if God already knows what I want? It's not for his benefit. We need to express what we need. And when I invite another person and say, could you pray for me? I'm inviting them to participate in this equation with me, which is a good thing. So it's not that we're watering it down. In fact, we're, we're revving it up, so to speak. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Brian's in Columbus, Ohio, listening on St. Gabriel Radio. Brian, you're on with Father John. Yes, thank you, Father John. This is in regards to the mark of the beast that we read in the Bible. And I need to know, for myself and my future generations, if we, I learned yesterday that somebody had a chip implanted in them. If we take a chip and it's implanted in us or our grandchildren and future generations, is that taking the sign of the beast? And what can we do to prevent it? Okay, well, um, it's, it's a good question. Uh, we're not exactly sure, uh, de fide, what um, the sign of the beast interprets for us right now. Um, some have, have, over the centuries, interpreted many different ways. Even the number 666, you know, um, people ascribe that to uh, Herod, to uh, Nero, to Hitler, Stalin, and others. Um, I heard even someone make the claim back uh, in the 1920s and 30s that Social Security number was the mark of the beast. The zebra code was the mark of the beast. 
whether it's a chip put into your head or not. Um, the point is the mark of the beast is not the mark itself. It's what it represents so that the mark of the beast signifies that you're in league with the devil. You're on the wrong side, willingly, knowingly. It's not by accident. It's not because you were born with a particular weird birthmark, like three sixes on the back of your head, like the movie had with Damien Thorne, who was the Antichrist. That's Hollywood. In terms of reality, whatever the mark is, everyone's going to know what it means, and those who want to be in league with the devil are going to say, I want that mark, uh, as opposed to those who are on the side of God, would say, no, I want to be identified as being on the side of God, as part of being a member of his family, being a, a child of God, as opposed to uh, a friend of Satan. Now, that being said, there's a lot of moral implications of having a chip put into your brain. Uh, I don't know all the niceties and ramifications. I would be a little hesitant unless someone gets one done because it's going to help uh, treat their um, uh, Parkinson's disease or any other uh, abnormalities. Yeah, that would be a great thing, but in terms of enhancing human nature, I'd be a little cautious, but I wouldn't see anything intrinsically evil about the chip itself, but why you're putting it in there, what's it going to do? So I don't think there's a one and only one uh, interpretation of what does the, the mark of the beast mean for us today. It can be a number of things. It might help us when you wander off. <laughs> Look out. <laughs> Oh, goodness gracious. And here's uh, one final question today that uh, kind of wraps up some of our discussion regarding um, marriage. Luke simply wants to know, what makes a sacramental marriage? A sacramental marriage is when two baptized persons enter into a permanent, faithful, and God-willing, fruitful union. And if they're Catholic Christians, they need to do this in front of a priest, a deacon, or a bishop. But the point is, that it's, uh, it's between a baptized man and a baptized woman for the first time. At our wedding, uh, Father Wade Menezes gave several definitions for a sacramental marriage. My favorite was one imperfect man and one imperfect woman who absolutely refused to give up on one another. That's a good one. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? Deus Pater et Filius et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for kicking off another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it tomorrow with Father Wade. Until we get together then, God bless.